How many of y'all were here Friday night? Show of hands. Okay, a bunch of you. Wow, it was it was marvelous. Pastor Shamran Hadian, former Iranian, former Muslim, had so much to share, and it was absolutely profound. I would encourage you. People have asked if we if we taped it. We didn't because it's his presentation and his ministry, and he has DVDs and and recordings and all of that. You can get those on uh, truthinloveministries.com or .org. It's one of the two. Just try and vote. You know how to do that. Uh, or just Google Truth in Love Ministries, Pastor Shamran Hadian, and you can get the exact presentation that he did Friday night. You can get the earlier one he did on the dangers of Chrislam. That's the mixing of Christianity and Islam that takes place and is taking place in our world. But fantastic, what he shared. Very uh, stirring. Not a little upsetting at times about what's truly going on in our country, not from a position of paranoia. This is a former Muslim who sees it very clearly and laid it out and showed us the intent and the desire of Islam, which is only really, he said, about 20% about being about a religion. It's really more of a world system, a governmental system of dominance and of moving in and taking over. And, and so he talked about that. And you, can, you can do follow-up on that if you didn't get a chance to hear it. But as I sat there listening to what he had to say... One of the things that, that really stirred in my heart was what can we do? You know, it's one thing to show up somewhere, get all this information, and then not feel like you can do a thing about it. I'm not in the halls of government. What influence do I have? I'm just a pastor in a church on North Whidbey Island. What can I do? And one of the things that came to me and really blessed me was the number of people who showed up Friday night. And I thought, okay, that's one thing we can do is we can get the info out. We cannot be afraid of the truth, but we can present the truth as often as possible so that people can hear the truth and make informed decisions. So that's something that we as a church fellowship can do. We can support those like Pastor Hadian who are on the front lines, and he has had his life threatened, as you can imagine, multiple times. Uh, he was packing Friday night, but you didn't know that. So here's a guy who, uh, who really is on the front lines, and we can support him. So you can, you can do that. Our fellowship supports his ministry. What else can we do, though? And I'm sitting there thinking that while he was talking, and then all of a sudden he came down to the point of practicality. Okay, what, what can you do about this? And you may recall the very first thing that popped up on the screen. He said, we've got to be bold with the gospel. You see, the best way to defeat the lies is to proclaim the truth. We have the truth in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, I know that our culture and our world has tried to put it down. They've been trying for 2,000 years. Even in, in Paul's day, it was spoken of poorly. People were trying to put down the, the movement of Christianity and, and the sharing of the gospel. And Christians for far too long have been far too quiet, have almost accepted that we really need to keep religion to ourselves. And that's not so. We must be bold with the gospel. Got an email from Spencer Headley. Many of you know Spencer and Barb, and Spencer and, and John Linus right now are in Israel. And he emailed me saying, Hey, on the flight from Brussels to Tel Aviv, I sat down and a man sat down next to me. And when the meal came, he began to pray. And he thought, Oh, I'm sitting by a Christian. And so Spencer, in his inimitable style, says, So are you a Christian? <laughs> No, I'm a Muslim. And uh, he talked, they talked a little bit, and Spencer said something to the effect that, that he said in his country, 
that uh, actually Muslims and Christians get along pretty well, so it's not a big issue. Which, by the way, Pastor Hadian would say he's, he's not a practicing Muslim. If you're getting along with Christians and you're a Muslim, you're not a practicing Muslim. Anyway, so Spencer said the whole flight it was quiet. All the way to Tel Aviv. It was quiet. Actually, I don't think it was, it was Brussels to somewhere else and then to Tel Aviv. And so wherever the other place was, they, they landed because Spencer purchased the flights and I think they have about 12 stops between here and Israel. <laughs> All the way on that flight, they were silent. And Spencer was praying, what do I say? What do I do? Do I do anything? Do I say anything? And he said, the plane landed and he turned toward him and took him by the shoulders and said, I need to tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus died for you. That He gave His life for you so that you can be assured of your salvation. Can I pray for you? And he said the guy was like a deer in the headlights. (laughs) Can can I pray for you? And he said, yes. (laughs) So Spencer launches into this prayer for the salvation. The man's name is Atta. A-T-T-A. Pray for him. Spencer said they got off the plane and went their separate ways. And he said, I probably will never see this guy again. Maybe he will. I don't know. But that's what we're talking about with boldness with the gospel. We're not afraid, we are not ashamed, we are not worried about, we are not hiding the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're called to be His people. And we either believe Him or we don't. And if we don't, let me just tell you right now, I love you, but don't waste your time coming to church. If you don't believe Him. But if you believe Him, for every single one of us, There's got to be some change in our hearts and some work, some things going on that His Spirit will do, but we've got to let Him do it. Romans chapter 1. Let's open up the book of Romans. I'm so excited to get into this. It is very different than where we've been for quite a while. In fact, if you recall, we the last year, even further back, really, we were in the Gospel according to John, and then we did the book of Acts. And so we've done a lot of marvelous teaching by Jesus and, and by Paul and Peter and the apostles in, in, those, in those two books as we were going through. But also a lot of history, so a lot of stories. We're not going to have a whole lot by way of stories in the letter to the, to the Romans. This is doctrine. This is teaching. And I can't think of a better season for us to get into this together. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, who according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace, and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for His name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. 
For God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you, and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles." I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. And with that, Father, we open the letter to the Romans. Father, a letter, I believe, completely inspired by Your Spirit, and so we will receive it as such. We will receive it, Lord, as authoritative. We will receive it as a letter, not from Paul, but from our Father. Our Father whom we call Abba. Because as we sang, we are no longer slaves to fear. We are children of God. So Lord, we gather around you now, around your feet as your children, and we say, teach us. And equip us, Lord, with the gospel and with the truth. Bring clarity and understanding and revelation, Father, so that we can be a people of the book, a people of declaration, a people bold with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, we come relying on You to bring understanding. And Lord, your, your servant Peter even said the writings of Paul are sometimes difficult. So Lord, we ask You to to walk us through the difficult passages and clear our minds of of the clutter. Father, may we set aside traditions and and old understanding and, and take this as if fresh, as if brand new, as if we were reading for the first time, but taught by the Spirit of God. And help us through equipping and understanding to be Your instruments in this dark world. Voices of truth. And of grace we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. In 20 BC, Caesar Augustus set up a monument right in the center of Rome, made of marble and they believe gilded bronze, in the central forum of the city of Rome called the Malarium Aureum. The Malarium Aureum, or the Golden Milestone. No one knows what it looked like, but its marble base can still be seen. For those of you who have visited Rome, or if you visit Rome, the marble base can be seen in the Roman Forum today. You can Google it and see a picture of it. The base that held the Malarium Aureum. What historians do know is that this monument was considered to be the hub. The central 
focus, if you will, the juncture, the starting point from which every road in the Roman Empire came. Like spokes from a wheel. Jutting out in streets and, and thoroughfares from the center, from the Malarium Aureum. And so it's been famously said, all roads lead to Rome. And all you have to do is pick up any commentary on the book of Romans and you will see that phrase at the very beginning. The commentarians love it. All roads lead to Rome. But ask Caesar Augustus, and I think he might have said it differently. I think he might have said, all roads lead from Rome. Which is why Paul wanted to get there so badly. Why he wanted the gospel to be implanted there, at the center of the world. Because all roads would lead from Rome. And if he could get the gospel into the heart, it would shoot out across all of those streets and thoroughfares. All of the spokes. There was no better place for the Apostle Paul in the late 50s AD, probably around 58, no better location into which to inject the gospel right into the heart. They call it intercardial injection. You've seen it on on all the shows. I don't know if they still do this, but if someone's heart stopped and there's nothing that they can do to restart, when faced with a crisis of cardiac arrest, a doctor will take a syringe filled with adrenaline and poke it straight into the heart and pump it full of that adrenaline. And that adrenaline then will shoot out through veins and arteries and, and sometimes revive a dying patient. And so Paul wanted to do the same thing. To drive the needle of truth filled with the syringe of the gospel into the very heart of Rome, that invigorating, life-saving good news of Jesus, so that it could jut out to the heart, from the heart of the Roman Empire. So it could rush along every artery, every vein, every highway and byway to all the people of the world. This is not Paul's first letter, by the way. It is, I believe, his magnum opus, his greatest letter, just in terms of doctrine. But he'd already written a couple of letters to the church in Thessalonica. He'd already written a letter to the churches in Galatia. Which came first, the letters to the Thessalonians or to the Galatian churches, is not clear. One of the two, I won't give an opinion even on that, doesn't matter. But they were both, or all three, earlier letters... He also wrote as many as as four letters to Corinth. We have two of those that the Lord chose to preserve. So this wasn't the first letter, nor would it be the last. He would write in all 13 letters. But, like the Malarium Aureum there centered in Rome, you could also say that all of the letters of Paul flow out from Romans. That it is the hub of all of the doctrine set down in writing by Paul. The golden milestone, you could say, is the book of Romans. The golden milestone of all of Paul's letters. Think about Paul's life now. It's been about 25 years. When he begins to dictate this letter as he will. We'll see in a moment. 25 years roughly... Before the writing of what some have called the Manifesto of Christian Freedom, Paul came to his own crossroads. There on the road, just outside of Damascus. The hub of Paul's life would be that location. 
he would refer back to it many times because it was out from that location and out from ultimately Damascus that Paul's spirit would be injected with the gospel truth. That would be Paul's golden milestone. His heart was pierced. His heart was brought to life with the gospel of Jesus when he met Jesus. And we are going to learn with reason and clarity all about sin and judgment. We're going to learn about faith and righteousness, justification, sanctification, Israel and the church and how that all works. Again, Paul's letter to the Romans is his magnum opus doctrinally. But please understand that for the good news to work its way into all our lives, it must be received personally. The doctrine is magnificent, but if it's not received by the person, it's worthless. This is a personal word from Paul. Now, his letters are sometimes called epistles, which sounds somewhat scholarly if not detached. We're going to study the epistles of Paul. I won't use the word epistles very often. Primarily because it does sound more heady. Think of this as a letter, because it was written as a letter. These letters, while they are absolutely doctrinally sound, the letters of Paul are personally warm. And I believe are to be read that way. To be read by one who loves the people that he's writing to. Who actually cares about those receiving these gospel truths. In the same way that we ought to care about this lost world. That we as we go out would speak personally and warmly and truthfully because we truly desire people to be saved. Not because we want to see them converted to a way of thinking. Or converted to a system such as Islam. I don't want to convert anybody to a system. I want to bring people to a Savior. And that is a personal thing. So the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans, must be received and read and understood personally. These are letters from a brother. Letters from a friend. Letters from a loved one. Look down again in verse 8 of chapter 1. Listen to how Paul speaks here. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. He says in verse 11, for I long to see you. He says in verse 12, that I may be encouraged together with you. He says down in verse 14, I plan to come to you. I want to be where you are. I mean, does that sound like a detached, cold theological treatise? No, he's saying, gang, I'm so excited at the prospect of being with you and of seeing you and and bringing some kind of a spiritual gift to you and being encouraged mutually together. I am eager to be with you there in Rome. Paul had an absolute, true, warm affection. These are not the words of a cold, detached, ivory-towered theologian. For Paul, the gospel is personal. For you and for me, the gospel must be personal. Do not let this study inform your doctrine without injecting your heart with the love of Jesus Christ. 
Well, we spent the last several weeks traveling with Paul, haven't we? Studying his road to Rome. Ultimately, how he ended up there, how he got there. Acts 19.21, he said, I must also see Rome, not as a tourist. You know, we talked about on Wednesday night, not, not, as a, uh, not even as an evangelist. He would come to Rome as a prisoner. But he wanted to go to Rome to be with the people and to teach and to, and to bring more of the gospel truth to their understanding. And it would take a good three years, minimum, for Paul to get to Rome from the sending off of this letter. Again, he came in chains. But wow, when he arrived, he received a warm welcome from the Roman Christians. Listen to this, Acts 28.13. We came to Puteoli, and there we found some of the brethren, and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and thus we came to Rome. And the brethren, when they heard about us, they came from there as far as the market of Appius and the three inns to meet us. 34, 44 miles outside of Rome, they came to meet Paul. And and we believe actually that as Paul was coming into town, they were coming out of the woodwork, all the Christians, to meet him along the way. Some to travel with him all the way into the heart, into the center of Rome. So he received a warm reception. But where was Paul when he wrote this letter? We believe he was at Corinth. And pretty easy to explain that. In Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, you can read the story. You can go back and look at it. Paul was in Corinth for a short stay. It was for the second time. He would go back to Corinth for a three-month stint. to the tail end of his third missionary journey. And when he came to Corinth for those three months, he stayed at the home of Gaius, a brother in Christ. He dictated this letter to the Roman Christians through another brother in the Lord named Tertius, or Tertius, You might say, well, how do we know that? Well, I want you to skip ahead in the letter to the Romans to chapter 16, the last chapter. Go ahead and turn there. The letter begins personally, it ends personally, as we will see a few weeks down the road, Lord willing. But at the beginning of chapter 16, verse 1, Paul says, I commend you to our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Cancrea. Now, that's the first little hint of where Paul is writing from. Phoebe would be the courier of this letter. And the church that that is there in Cancrea, Cancrea itself was a suburb of Corinth. In fact, it was the east harbor of Corinth. And it was a region called Cancrea. So it was part of Corinth, and he's going to be sending Phoebe with the letter from Corinth, from Cancrea. So that's the first hint that he is there in Corinth when he writes this. If you look down in verse 22, he says, or it says, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. So we know who the author of the letter is, or we know who the writer is. The author is who? Hmm? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspiring Paul, who would then speak this letter, and Tertius would write the letter down. And then in verse 23, Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. And we know from archaeological proof that Erastus was the city treasurer of Corinth. And Cortus, the brother, 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, be with you all. Amen. So, Phoebe, the courier from Corinth. Tertius signs his name to the letter. He's from Corinth. Erastus, the city treasurer of Corinth. And Gaius was Paul's host in Corinth. And he was one of the few Corinthians, by the way, who was baptized by Paul. We're told in 1 Corinthians 1.14, Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. I like that attitude. Paul says, I, I was not the baptizer, because you know what, gang? The baptizer doesn't matter. Doesn't have to be a pastor. Doesn't have to be a priest. Doesn't have to be some religious figure who does the baptizing. Because the baptism is into Jesus. The one who does the heart change. The baptism is simply the outward example or expression of the inward heart that Jesus has submerged and immersed with His grace. I don't mind baptizing people. I'll put on the waiters. But Paul says, "I I didn't do it. Crispus and Gaius. Well, he stays at the home of Gaius. The rest of chapter 16 in Romans, makes up kind of a who's who's list of Paul's associates and brothers and and kindred. And it's interesting because they are mostly, if not all, Gentiles. Rabbi Paul, with a bunch of heathen Gentiles preaching and bringing the gospel. Why did Tertius pen the letter and not Paul himself? Well, we've already talked about that. It is likely that Paul had an eye issue. Some believe that that is the thorn in the flesh that Paul talks about in the Scriptures. A debilitating blindness that Paul would be affected by, and that would affect everything that Paul did. Now now stop and think about that for a second. Paul could barely even write because he couldn't see well enough. I'm getting there. But he couldn't write. He had to dictate, and most of his letters are going to be dictated to someone else who who writes them down for him. It makes sense ultimately when he's in chains, that would be a little difficult too. But he would dictate these letters to those who could write, and I think, God, why would you do that? Here is your instrument to bring the gospel in the first century. Paul is your missionary. And you allow him to get sick to the point of blindness? Or even a limited blindness. In fact, it said that the Apostle Paul <laughs> was not only uh, limited and, and weak-eyed, drippy-eyed, some said, it's also said that he was kind of short. In fact, in the Corinthian letter, he mentions not being of much stature. And when he's in person, he, you know, he mentions saying, he says, I was impressive you know, in writing. Some of you said he's really impressive in his letters, but when he shows up, it's like, are you kidding me? He was short, apparently, historians say, a little stooped, droopy-eyed, balding, hook-nosed. <laughs> Sign of holiness, right, Brian? So here's this guy who's not very impressive, and now he's got this issue of, 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 of blindness, and I love it. I love it. This is the one Jesus uses. This is the man He calls. Not, get this, not 2,000 years of the impressive Apostle Paul. But this short, balding, drippy-eyed, stooped-over, hook-nosed Jewish rabbi. 
And He comes bringing the Gospel of Jesus Christ with power and by the Spirit. And it makes all the difference in the world. Jesus uses Him to give insight. A blind Paul gives insight into the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you ever think that you are not well suited for the call of God, you are so wrong. You are so wrong. Don't allow your disabilities to disable your calling. Often God gives us disabilities. I was born with one. Cleft lip and cleft palate. And it was severe. And it was also at a time in this country where they were just starting to figure out how to deal with it surgically. I had 21 surgeries growing up. And it's ironic to me that I spend my life talking. (laughs) That I'm a preacher of the gospel... And the very instrument that I have to use to preach the gospel is a disabled instrument. It is not completely functional in the way that you would think it's supposed to be. Now you may sit there and go, oh Rick, it's functional. It's often way too functional. I get that. (laughs) But I marvel that God does these things. That He uses us in our disabilities to to prove not our abilities, but to prove His glory. And to show Himself. In our weaknesses, God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. 1 Corinthians 1.27 If you're weak, praise the Lord. If you've got some debility, some issue, some problem that you think, man, this is just going to really hamper my ability to share the gospel with anyone, praise God, because when you do, they will see Him and not you. Paul said in Hebrews 11.33, I think it was Paul, He talked about those who by faith conquered kingdoms and performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weaknesses were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Wait a minute, did you catch that? From weaknesses were made strong. In the midst of this, of this declaration of these great people of faith in the past, Paul makes it clear, hey, they were weaklings. They were made strong. They did not start out that way. They were made strong in the Lord. And so Paul, when he wrote 1 Corinthians 12, 9, said, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, Short, bald little rabbi. With distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. Oy vey, for Christ's sake. When I am weak, then I am strong. So that's, that's the heart of the guy who is dictating this letter. Inspired by the Spirit, penned by Tertius. The Apostle Paul is nothing impressive. What is impressive is the Gospel. What is impressive is what the Spirit inspires. So it looks as though Paul, the most prolific writer of the New Testament letters, had trouble seeing. Galatians 6.11, he says, See with what large letters I am writing to you in my own hand? A. B. (laughs) When he did write, he had to write big. He'll address weakness in Romans as well. 
And we as a church, a body of believers, a fellowship would do well to pay attention to these verses, Romans 14.1, except the one who is weak in faith. But not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. I've often had the conversation with people, listen, we will always have weak faith at the bridge. Always. Because there are always those who are just beginning to know Jesus. And don't we want them here? If we were simply a church of only those who were strong and passionate in the faith, only those who are here every time the doors are open, only those who are out preaching the gospel every single day, what about those who are just coming to know Him? What about those who don't know Him at all? Except the one who is weak in faith. Romans 15, verse 1. Paul says, We who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. What are you saying, Paul? I'm saying, you are not here for you. Two reasons why Christians are still here and not raptured the moment we believe. It is for the gospel of Jesus Christ and to bear with the weakness of our brothers and sisters. To minister to the world with the gospel and to minister to the church with love. That's why we're here. Those are our two primary callings in this world. So, be careful. Because just when... Just as when we are weak, He makes us strong, so when we think we are strong, we may, in reality, be at our weakest point. So we bear with one another. Well, we'll we'll get there. We'll get to Romans 14, Romans 15, perhaps, unless Jesus calls us home first, in which case, I'm good. Now, I want to accomplish just two things today. First, I want to give you an outline of the letter, so that we kind of have a, a direction. We know where we're going. And then I want to end with the hub of this whole thing. So first, the outline. Legally blind or not, Paul was no haphazard nomad. Which is why I began with the strategy of the evangelist. He was a spirit-led, strategic evangelist who knew, as we said at the outset, all roads lead from Rome. All roads will go out. And if the gospel can get there... The gospel will go out as well. But Rome in the first century, great, powerful, mighty Rome, was eroding on the inside. It was already incredibly corrupt. All of the values that were started with this great nation were falling apart on the inside. Sound familiar? Externally, the Romans thought that they were in the greatest nation in the history of the world. And they were at that point. But internally, it was crumbling. President Obama said the same thing about America on Tuesday in his State of the Union address. I don't know how you could be so blind. No offense. Well, okay, if there's offense, take it. But... I don't know how you could stand up before this country and say that we're just, we're great. We're doing great. It's all good. And obviously, Obama and his advisors were trying to put a happy spin at the tail end of his presidency. I get that. It's politics. Let's go out saying everything that we wanted to achieve, we did, and it's made us all the better. And I'm not even thinking or speaking 
politically, but if a president of a nation stands up and says, this nation's never been better. We are still the greatest nation in history on the planet. So why are people so afraid? Why are people so worried? Why is the stock market completely running wild right now? Why when you talk to just average people on the street, do they seem unnerved about the state, the division of our country? Hey, if we were truly so great, we'd know. But if we were crumbling internally, we would know that too, and I think we do. I think we do. I think the average man on the street understands the position that we are in. We are uncomfortably aware of the decay in this nation, even while this culture is approving of and embracing depravity. Rome was never conquered. Did you know that? Rome was never a conquered nation, not conquered like Babylon or Persia or Greece before it. Those mighty nations were conquered, overtaken by the next nation. Rome came along and it simply decayed. It's still there, Rome today. Not the kind of power player in the world it once was. It's always kind of still been there. But mighty Rome has become a 28-pound weakling. Rome just decayed from the inside, divided up, crumbled fell apart, underneath these marvelous Roman roads was intense erosion. And that's what Paul was looking into. And he'll talk about that. (laughs) The stories of immorality in Rome are legendary. And you you can do the research. Some of it I won't even mention here. I will mention the vomitoriums. I mean, just the word. Vomitorium. Honey, the Thanksgiving dinner was really good and I would love to have leftovers, but I need to go to the vomitorium first. And they would do this. They would gorge themselves on food and just, you know, parties that would be two, three days long of eating and drinking and eating and drinking. And when they got so full, they're just bursting. They would go to the vomitorium. And then they go right back to eating. How do you do that? The taste is still in your mouth. I mean, gross. I remember throwing up tricks one time. <laughs> I was a kid. And I, I don't know, eight, nine years old. And boy, that was the most brilliantly colorful <laughs> evening of my life, I can tell you. The immorality, stunning. I I read several things this week. Again, I don't even want to discuss. Uh, Paul will in another letter say there are some things shouldn't even be talked about. They're so depraved. But the sexual immorality of Rome was not unlike the sexual immorality of America today. What was embraced by the culture, what was approved of even by those who did not embrace the sexual immorality is very similar today to where America is. So this letter is timely for us. 
And while immorality was embraced in, in every form, there was a people group in Rome who were not. I'm not yet talking about Christians, although they would not be embraced either. I'm talking about Jews. For Rome in the first century was filled with a raging anti-Semitism. Waves of anti-Semitic persecution rolled through the city. Christianity's connection to Judaism was part of the issue. That, along with their refusal to bow to Caesar as a god, made Christianity the eventual target target of, of some 300 years a brutal persecution, most of it coming from Rome until Rome and the Christians got in bed together. Until the objectionable marriage that Jesus talks about in his letter to Pergamum in the book of Revelation. In Acts 18, you might recall, Paul met a couple, Prisca and Aquila. They would become dear friends of Paul's. Priscilla and Aquila, he called her Prisca, which was her nickname, kind of a cute name. And they were Jews, native to Rome, but Paul met them on his missionary journey prior to coming to Rome because they had been driven out of Rome. During the reign of Emperor Claudius, he set out an edict that all the Jews were to leave Rome, were to be kicked out. Now we read that with an historical eye and we say, oh, okay, so they were kicked out of it. They just all had to pack it up and leave. They lost jobs. They lost homes. They left family. They left friends. They lost everything. How would you feel if suddenly Oak Harbor had to be cleared of all Christians? And you had no choice. Pack it up and leave. You have one week. Well, see, Priscilla and Aquila were among those Jews of Rome who were kicked out because of the anti-Semitism that was there. Do we see that rolling in this country as well? And of course, as I said, it affected the Christians. And in the same way that Babylon was the center of idolatry in the 6th century B.C., so Rome in the 1st century A.D. could be called the center of sin in history. The center of sin in history. Roman was, Rome was a great nation in terms of sin. Perhaps the greatest to that point in terms of the depravity that was going on underneath the marble streets of Rome. So after Paul's very warm introduction in chapter 1, in fact, I'm not going to include this in the outline, but if you want to outline it, chapter 1 is, begins with the introduction and then chapter 16 will be the conclusion. But in between these two, Paul launches into three chapters after introducing and and warmly greeting the Roman church. Three chapters of hard, cold condemnation. And that's the first part of the outline. Chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20 is the condemnation. If you look at verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And we will start to get into that on Wednesday night. And it is stark. What Paul writes in Romans chapter 1 alone could get us in trouble for hate speech. It's not hate speech. In fact, as Pastor Hadian so brilliantly stated on Friday night, it is not hate to tell someone the truth that might save them from going to hell. So we will speak these words. Ray reminded me several years ago, I said, if an edict ever came down from from the state, the pastors were no longer 
able to talk about what the Bible has to say about homosexuality and sexual immorality, I said, the next Sunday I will preach from Romans chapter 1. Well, it's the next Sunday. And I I want you all to know, let me just say this ahead of time, because we're going to get here either Wednesday night and or next Sunday. I am no more anti-homosexual than I am anti-Muslim. I'm anti-Islam because it is a religious system that will send people to hell. I'm not anti-homosexual because there are people in pain and in anguish and struggling and hurting in this world with an attraction that they don't understand and many that just give into it because again our culture says go and do that. What I am anti is the sin itself. That is not okay. And it is not to be embraced. There are some in the Bridge Fellowship that embrace it. Well, I'm not saying that are active homosexuals, but there are brothers and sisters of yours, and I know this for a fact, who think, how bad is it? Just, just, it's okay. You can be a homosexual and follow Jesus. You can be active in that lifestyle, and it's all right. I'm a Christian, therefore I'm going to be loving and accepting and embrace the homosexual. Where were we ever told in Scripture to embrace somebody in their sin? To embrace their sin. I have no problem embracing the person. Because I was embraced in my sin and saved by the grace of God. But to embrace the sin itself and to blandly say, as our country has said, as the lighthouse was lit up in all the colors of the rainbow... That it's okay. That it's just an alternative lifestyle and that something, you, you can do that and no problem. Do that, be a Christian. One of the singers of the group Pentatonics is a homosexual who says, isn't it great I can be gay and be a Christian? Well, we're going to talk about what God thinks of that. And what you have to decide, brothers and sisters, same thing that I have to decide. Am I going to accept God's word and stand by His word on it or am I going to waffle in the words of man? It's your decision. Condemnation. God's wrath revealed. God's wrath revealed. That's where this this letter begins. And he details God's righteous reasons for His wrath. Chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. But just when you might think, all is lost. Because Paul basically brings you down to a point where there is no one who is righteous, no, not one, nobody who can be saved, no, not one, condemnation, and then part two of the outline, salvation. Salvation. Which is God's witness revealed. His wrath is revealed in condemnation, His witness revealed in salvation. Chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through chapter 8, verse 39, is all about salvation. Look at this. Go over to chapter 3, verse 21. Paul writes, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. And in this wonderful section of the letter, we learn what it means to be justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. 
We learn what it means to be then sanctified, made holy in Christ. And by the way, the sanctification is the, is the reason why you cannot continue in a lifestyle of sin once you have been saved by Jesus. For the homosexual who says, I'm a Christian and a homosexual, I would say then you are rejecting sanctification. Because once I have been justified and saved and redeemed by the blood of Christ, then He changes me, He washes me, He cleanses me, and I begin to walk differently. Justification, sanctification, and then ultimately glorification. As fellow heirs with Christ, all of that He covers in this marvelous section from chapter 3 through chapter 8 of salvation. And by the way, Paul's explanation of the difference between flesh and spirit in chapter 7 and chapters 8, absolutely profound. We're going to get into that. What the flesh wants and what the spirit calls us to. The mind set on the flesh and the mind set on the spirit. And how do we choose to be spirit-led people? Condemnation. Salvation. Part 3. Vindication. Vindication, that is God's wisdom revealed. That begins in chapter 9 and runs through chapter 11. God's wisdom revealed. Romans chapter 11 verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. You see, the vindication of God's wisdom comes in the form of His eternal plan with His chosen people, Israel. Romans 9, 10, and 11 is the centerpiece of God's will for Israel in the New Testament. And any Christian who thinks that God has replaced the Jews that He is through with the Jew, that He has no more use for the Jewish people, and Israel is a thing of ancient history, has not read or studied or understood Romans 9, 10, and 11. And it is beautiful teaching, and it's clear teaching, and it's passionate personal teaching, by the way. Paul, a Jew, saying, I would have myself cut off and accursed if it would save my brethren. And then he begins to describe in detail all of this. I told you, I think it was years ago, Prussian King Frederick the Great once asked his court chaplain, he said, Can you give me any proof that the Bible is true? And without hesitation, his wise chaplain said, The Jew, sir. The Jew. Not the Jew, sir. (laughs) The Jew. Israel. And I would say to you today, Israel as a nation replanted, reestablished in the Middle East is proof positive of the prophecies of the Hebrew Scriptures. And of the fact that God still is working on His plan for Israel even as He has opened His plan for the church, for the Gentile. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. But when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, the Jewish plan comes back into play. And it's marvelous teaching. We will get there. Romans 9-11 through gives the most crystal clear, set in stone argument of God's ongoing plan for Israel in the New Testament. Romans 11, verse 1, Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be. Does it get any clearer than that? Condemnation. God's wrath revealed. Salvation, God's witness revealed in Jesus. Vindication, God's wisdom revealed in Israel. 
And number four, exhortation. And this is the section of Romans when we get to chapter 12 through chapter 15. The exhortations of the Spirit through Paul. How then shall we live? We have all of this marvelous information from chapter 1 running all the way through chapter 11. And suddenly in chapter 12 he begins to say, okay, so here's the deal. So take all of this equipping, all of this, and utilize it in your life. How does a saved person live? What does he look like? What does she look like? How do we walk with Jesus today? Well, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, not man, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Brothers and sisters in Christ, please don't cave to culture. Live for God. Be acceptable to Him. Be changed by Him. In His good and acceptable and perfect will. That's the target, not the world around us. It's practical Christianity at its very best, Romans 12 through 15, and I hope you hear all of it again unless Jesus should take us home. So four main sections. Condemnation, God's wrath, that's chapters 1 through 3. Salvation, God's witness, chapters end of chapter 3 through the end of chapter 8. Vindication, God's wisdom, chapters 9, 10, and 11. And finally, exhortation, chapters 12 through 15, before the conclusion of chapter 16. Now, there are other ways you could break down the book of Romans. I've chosen to do it this way. You could, you could say uh, chapters 1 through 8 are doctrinal, chapters 9 through 11 are dispensational, and chapters 12 through 16 are practical. Whatever works to help you follow this through. But it gets us rolling. <laughs> Now, back to the hub. And I really only need about an hour and a half, maybe two hours. Well, probably till the end of the game to cover this. <laughs> back to the hub very quickly. The Malarium Orium, the golden milestone. In my opinion, this is the Malarium Orium of the book of Romans. This is the golden milestone and we will end here. In Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, He made this very profound statement. Colossians 2 verse 6, As you have received Jesus Christ the Lord, walk in Him. So I remind you, this is personal. As you receive not a system, not a church, not a religion, as you received Jesus, so walk in Jesus. And Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome is an invitation to that, to walk in and with and by Jesus. And if Romans is the hub of all of Paul's letters, here is the hub of the book of Romans, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. Paul reaches back six and a half centuries here to the prophet Habakkuk. And he quotes Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, which says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. See, it was already set up 650 years before Paul. 
The righteous will live by faith. That's so interesting to me. And please don't think that I'm wise enough to put this all together and to have prepared this. I'm not. Two weeks ago I shared with you a word that I believe the Lord gave me through a long night on a Saturday coming into Sunday morning. And do you remember what that word was? Righteousness. I had not yet cracked the book of Romans, my friends. I've been a little behind in my study. I hadn't opened up. I'd been stressing about it because I knew I needed to get to Romans. And normally I'm reading ahead and thinking ahead and praying ahead. I hadn't by that point. Two weeks back, I hadn't even looked. When God said to me, I'm convinced, Rick, the word for the bridge. My word for the bridge. Righteousness. Righteousness. And then I began to intensively study the letter because I was short on time and realized, wow. I came to the hub that tells us the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That the righteous shall live by faith. And this letter, the timing of this, please don't let it miss your heart. The timing, God is clearly calling this fellowship to righteousness. And if you're unclear on righteousness, that's okay. We're going to get there. We're going to understand this. We're going to study righteousness. You can't go through Romans without getting this. If there's a single theme to the entire book, it is the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. Paul will use that phrase five times in the book of Romans. Five is the number of grace in the Bible, which is an interesting pairing. Grace and righteousness. But five times Paul will refer to the righteousness of God. But what does that mean? See, as a kid growing up in the church, I would hear the word righteousness and I immediately thought puritanical. Righteous, I equated with suits and ties. And if you have a suit and tie on, that's cool. That's fine. It's cool. You know, Pastor Hadian had one on Friday night. And I thought, wow, maybe I should wear a suit and tie. They take me a little more seriously. <laughs> But that's what I thought. Righteousness was a look. And you might say, if we're going to study and understand and and go after righteousness, Pastor Rick, if you're saying that God's word for our church is righteousness, man, that sounds like you're saying we're all going to be walking around like cloistered monks. You know? Intoning Gregorian chants before the year is through. Hitting ourselves over the head with our Bibles. I love that scene in Monty Python's uh, The Holy Grail. You know, the monks are there doing that chant. And then they go, boom. They just walk along. But people have that view of righteousness. That it's this uptight, closed-minded, holding up, grumpy at no... Hey, the kingdom of God is joy and righteousness and peace in the Holy Spirit. You can't have peace and joy. You know, if you've got righteousness in the middle of that, there's your righteousness sandwich right there. Joy, righteousness, peace. That's a good thing. And if you have righteousness, you have joy. And if you have righteousness, you have peace. Righteousness, gang, is what it's about. What the Lord is showing me is very simple. Righteousness is the only way to live. It's the only way to live. He says, look at verse 16 again, quickly. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why would Paul say that? Because Christians were being tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. 
in Roman culture as in American culture. The Roman Christians were being made fun of. The Jews in Rome, when when, when Paul came to Rome, do you remember the Jews meeting him there and and the conversation they had? They said, yeah, we've heard about this. In fact, let me read it to you. They say, we haven't heard anything bad about you, but we would like to hear what your views are concerning this sect. This is Acts 28, 22. It is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. Already, Christianity was being put down, disdained. Paul writes to the church in Rome, to the Christians there, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. Get this, the dunamis. There are five different Greek words for power, and he chooses dunamis, which is the same word that speaks of the Spirit baptizing a believer. The dunamis. The gospel is the power of God. Hey, guess what? Rome is not the power. Rome is not the source of the might in this world. The gospel, which is the power of God. The intrinsic power of God. That's what that means. For salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first. And also to the Greek. Paul is not ashamed because the power of this gospel is, gang, the only teaching in the world, please get this, and Pastor Hadian said this Friday night, that it's the only teaching in the world that does not depend on human power for salvation. You want to be a Hindu? It's up to you. Want to be a Mormon? It's up to you. You've got to work your way up. You want to be Jehovah's Witness? It's up to you. Islam? It's based on all of your hard work and effort, and that may not be enough. enough. Allah may, at the last minute, say, no. No guarantee of salvation. Because any time that salvation is based on the righteousness of man or of woman, we're in a world of hurt. And we all know that personally. You know what? We know the unrighteousness in our lives personally just like we all know the unrighteousness in our nation in reality people may reject it but they know it that the nation is corrupt and I know that without the grace and mercy and the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ I am corrupt I am unsavable but by the love of God he's not ashamed of the gospel It's good news, but to get it, listen, to get it, he must be believed. He must be believed. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Again, when Paul finally reached Rome, what did he do? He went to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Just as he did throughout all of his missionary travels, it was always to the synagogue, always to the Jew first, to give them first right of refusal. And then he would turn to the Gentiles. He does the same thing when he arrives in Rome. But he says the same thing here. The gospel message, this salvation goes to the Jew first and then goes to the Greek. Acts 28-23 says they came to him in large numbers to his lodging. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. From morning until evening. And some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. Some believed, some did not. The gospel 
understand is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He must be believed. And it's not a what. God is not going to ask you what do you believe. He will ask who do you believe. Because again, Romans is personal. The Gospel is personal. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says, Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Who must be believed? He must be believed. 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul says, We preach Jesus Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Gospel is not a story. The Gospel is not a religious credo. The Gospel is Jesus. The Gospel is a person. And through the power of Revealed in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, salvation is secured again for all who believe Him and who believe in Him. Romans 10.9 says, Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because Paul isn't, get this, because Paul isn't ashamed of Jesus. Maybe that's the motivation we've been missing. That when we think about sharing the gospel, we're a little ashamed of sharing a religion. So we waffle and we're uncertain then don't do that. Don't go around sharing the Bridge Fellowship. You go and share Jesus. And if you're afraid to speak the name of Jesus to someone, you might ask yourself, why? Am I ashamed of Jesus? Paul's not ashamed of the Gospel because Paul's not ashamed of Jesus. I'm not ashamed of Jesus. Hey, I'm not ashamed of my wife Cheryl. I'll talk to you all day long about Cheryl. I'll talk about her virtues. I'll talk about how she cracks me up. I'll talk about how I love the way her golden hair glitters in the sunlight. I, you know, I mean, I, I'm not ashamed of my wife. I'm pleased to be with her. Am I ashamed of Jesus? If I'm not ashamed, then let that be my motivation. Remember what the Bible says? Christ's love compels us. His love, Jesus, controls us, directs us. Paul is not ashamed. Are you ever ashamed of Jesus, His teaching, His word, His righteousness? His positions that conflict with our culture? Are are, are you ashamed of those things such that you would rather go with culture than with Christ? To dismiss His word, any of His word even as archaic or outdated, is to be ashamed of Him. And tragically, there are those who do. But get this, verse 17 should never be separated from verse 16. Because verse 17 continues and says, For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteousness of God, the righteousness that is God, His character, His nature, inherent to Him, is revealed from faith to faith. What does that mean? There's a lot of 
debate that swirls around this. The, the NIV just translates this from first to last. That's okay if your name's Oscar Milk Toast. Some have, some have said, well, from faith to faith is from the faith of the Old Testament to the faith of the New Testament. Well, maybe you're getting warmer here. From faith in the law to faith in the gospel, because the law brings us to Christ, right? So maybe it's from the original faith of Israel to the faith now revealed in Christ Jesus. From faith to faith. And again, that's getting warmer. But here's the thing. Your faith, my faith, originates with Him. Okay? It's from faith, faith that is given to me, to faith as that faith is sanctified and made righteous and grows and expands in Him. That yes, my faith today, 51 years in, is far greater than it was when I gave my life to Jesus as a 10-year-old boy. So I could say from faith to faith, but don't misunderstand, that faith was not self-generated. I think a good way to put it might be from faithfulness to faith. His faithfulness to my faith. The righteousness of God is made manifest, is made clear. We would have no faith if God didn't give it to us. Out of His faithfulness, my faith is born. And the righteousness of God revealed in His faithfulness is now attributed, credited to me as we'll find out in Romans chapter 4. But as for me, my part is I trust Him for it. And it's as simple as that. It's putting my trust in God for all of these things. You see, everything that we're going to learn, especially in this section from chapter 4 through chapter 8, everything that we're going to learn in all of that is not so that we can now figure out how to do it, and then by doing it, save ourselves. We will have missed the whole thing. What it reveals to us is how God does it. How He gives faith, makes righteous, and then begins to sanctify and grow that faith and that righteousness through our justification and sanctification, bringing us to that place of of glorification in Him. And there are other sons in there that we won't get to right now. But it's all Him. It is all Him. All His work, His faithful work in my life, from faith to faith. And I just trust Him. Again, now if you're struggling to understand that, it's okay. Paul's going to fully explain that as we get to chapter 4. But he doesn't stop there. He then applies it finally to Habakkuk. Chapter 2, verse 4, where he says... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. But the righteous shall live by faith. What a great statement. Now taking the context both here and in Habakkuk into consideration. Here's how the best translate that. It's not the righteous shall live by faith. Because that kind of sounds like something I do. It's the righteous by faith shall live. How is that different? You want to live? You want life? You will only get it by faith. It is by faith that we come alive. It is by trusting in Jesus that I am born again. It is through faith in Jesus, day in and day out, that my life becomes life. Life eternal and life right now. You want to live? 
by faith. The righteous by faith shall live. And it's the best way to live in this world, gang. The best way. Without faith, you're dead on the highway. Roadkill on the roadside to Rome. There's an awful lot of roadkill. An awful lot of people that never make it to the hub. Never even get to Romans 16 and 17, much less to the book of Romans, much less to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would say to you this morning, come to the golden milestone. Come to the hub of life who is Jesus Christ Himself. From whom flows all life. All roads don't lead from Rome. But I'll tell you what, the one road to the Father is from Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That personal enough? Come trusting in Him, trusting in His faithfulness, and you can and you will be made righteous.